following audio is from a sermon series called Rebuilding the Ruins. The story of Ezra and Nehemiah begin with the people of God in Babylonian exile due to their unfaithfulness. The God of heaven, who is faithful to his promises, then stirs up and empowers his people to walk anew in faithfulness and rebuild the ruins. For more information about Sacred City Moline, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Ezra 6, 1 through 15. Then Darius the king made a decree, and search was made in Babylonia, in the house of the archives, where the documents were stored. And in Ecbatana, the citadel that is in the province of Media, a scroll was found on which was written a record. In the first year of Cyrus the king, Cyrus the king issued a decree concerning the house of God at Jerusalem, Let the house be rebuilt, the place where sacrifices were offered, and let its foundations be retained. Its height shall be 60 cubits, and its breadth 60 cubits, with three layers of great stones and one layer of timber. Let the cost be paid from the royal treasury, and also let the gold and silver vessels of the house of God, which Nebuchadnezzar took out of the temple that is in Jerusalem and brought to Babylon, be restored and brought back to the temple that is in Jerusalem, each to its place. You shall put them in the house of God. Now therefore, Tatnai, governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozne, and your associates, the governors, who are in the province beyond the river, keep away. Let the work on this house of God alone. Let the governor of the Jews and the elders of the Jews rebuild this house of God on its site. Moreover, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of this house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full and without delay from the royal revenue, the tribute of the province from beyond the river, and whatever is needed, bulls, rams, or sheep for for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, Let that be given to them day by day, without fail, that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to the God of heaven and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Also, I make a decree that if anyone alters this edict, a beam shall be pulled out of his house, and he shall be impaled on it, and his house shall be made a dunghill. May the God who has caused his name to dwell there overthrow any king or people who shall put out a hand to alter this, or to destroy this house of God that is in Jerusalem. I, Darius, make a decree. Let it be done with all diligence. Then, according to the word sent by Darius the king, Tatnai, the governor of the province beyond the river, Shethar Bozene, and their associates did all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah, the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. This is the word of the Lord. We are working through the book of Ezra. We've been going verse by verse, chapter by chapter, and um, this is really part one of a two-part sermon series. Actually, 
I, I mentioned it before that Ezra can basically be split up into two um, chunks. There's the first movement, which is the rebuilding of the temple. Then the second movement involves Ezra coming back to Jerusalem to teach the law. And then later on, part three, is when Nehemiah comes and begins to rebuild the city walls. And in chapter six of Ezra, we come to basically the, the final piece of the first movement of this story that God's telling through Ezra and Nehemiah. And we see here, this week, is a major development. There's a lifetime achievement taking place in this moment in time. If you're just joining us, or maybe you've got a, a bit of a, a forgetful memory, I would like to set the stage for us so that we can grasp the gravity, have a full appreciation for what it is that's underway or what's happening here in verse or excuse me, chapter six. Because if we were just to jump right in in chapter six, it'd be a lot like picking up a novel and reading the last chapter of it, and we get to the end, we know the conclusion, but we have lost all of the twists and the turns and the ups and the downs and the struggles and the temptations and foibles that have brought them to this place, and we don't get the appreciation for this finale as we ought to have. So let me, if you will humor me, uh, retrace this journey we've taken so far. Ezra chapter 1 begins with God's people, the Jews, 500 miles away from home. Fifty years before, they had been led away into Babylonian captivity where when their fathers had um, failed to honor God, they gave themselves to idolatry and God issued a judgment on them and the Babylonian empire came in, destroyed Jerusalem, destroyed the temple and carried them all away into captivity. For 50 years, they were in exile. After 50 years, the Babylonian empire got Conquered by the Persian Empire, King Cyrus took over. And in that first year of King Cyrus, God stirred up in King Cyrus's heart to issue a decree to send the Jews back home to rebuild the temple, the house of God that had been destroyed. And so we see this movement of God take place where it stirs up the heart of the king. He stirs up the heart of, of the men and women who will go back to rebuild. He stirs up the heart of the people who are staying behind in Babylon to give to the, give resources to this work that God's called them to do. And there's this big movement. They head back home. They arrive in Jerusalem and get to work right away. And we see in chapter 3, they begin building an altar and they lay the foundation to the temple. The work has begun, and as quickly as they begin the work, they begin to face opposition. Their neighbors hear what's going on, they see what's going on, and they start to harass and to bully the Jews. They make it very hard for the trade routes to bring the timber in that they need to build this temple. To, they disrupt the supply chain, they're harassing them, they're discouraging them, they're creating fear in and among the Jewish people. They're really being a thorn in their side. Yet, as they face adversity from the neighbors, they courageously press on with the building project. The altar is finished, the temple foundation is laid, and they start to move out toward the city walls, kind of restoring the city. It's the first effort to rebuild the city. Now, when the city walls are going up, this, this, the, the Persian king is tipped off by this. At this point, King Cyrus has passed away. There's actually a new king in office, 
And the neighbors write a letter to this king, to King Darius, to speak of this rebellion that's taking place in Jerusalem. And the king gets the word of this rebuilding project that he was not totally aware of, as we see later on here. He doesn't understand that Cyrus had appointed them to go build the temple, that he'd given the green light to do that. He feels threatened by the city that's being built right in front of his face. And what he does is he issues a cease and desist letter, which abruptly halts the work. Now, there's debate here whether or not the cease and desist letter meant to stop working on the temple or simply to stop working on the city walls, but nevertheless, the Jewish people did both. And what happens is the, the work halts. They, they become self-preoccupied. They have this mission drift where their, their main goal was to build a house for God, where the God of heaven and earth could dwell with his people, among his people. And during this lull in the mission, the focus of the people shifts from building God's house to building their own homes. They build these paneled houses, and, and this does not please God. God sends the prophets to provoke them, but what they find out is as they give themselves to building up these, this own little life for themselves, this own little home for the, the people and neglecting God's home, the people of Israel become less satisfied the more self-focused they are. The more they turn in on themselves, the more that they kind of make their little world the, the end-all, be-all, the more futility they experience in living this life. Now, the reason why they feel this way, the reason why there's this pinch, naturally, as they drift on to their own self-preoccupation of building their own little homes, is because the whole point of going back to Jerusalem, the whole point of rebuilding the temple, the whole point on taking on this massive building project was that God, the God of heaven and earth, would return with his people to Jerusalem and be with them. That the temple would function as the dwelling place of God's presence. He would be there with his people, and this whole project gets neglected. Now, it's likely, if, if left to themselves, that would have been the end of the story. They just kind of would have fizzled out. It was a big plan. It was a good plan. But we ran into too many obstacles. We had too much opposition. We got distracted and sidetracked or lazy or whatever the case might be. It could have just been it just phased right out. And that was it. But God sent prophets who carried the word of God with them. God spoke to his people through men like Haggai and Zechariah. And the word that God spoke through these men jolted the Jews back to work. And they came back with a new vigor, to rebuild the temple. They were recaptured by this vision of having a place for God to dwell and be among his people. And so they get back to work. This is what we saw last week in chapter 5 where they go back to work and they're building and they're giving themselves to it and they're, all the big stones and the timber, it's going and it's going well. They're prospering. The work is going well for them. And just while it's going well, a city inspector shows up, a building inspector. I don't know if you've ever tried to build something with a building inspector's approval, but it can sometimes be a hassle. And the city inspector shows up, and he's like, is it right for you to build this? Do you have the right permits to keep going on in this manner? Now, this seems like it could disrupt the whole flow of the building project once again, but God gives the Jewish people 
um, prosperity, and, and he blesses the work of their hands. And the whole time while they're under investigation, they just keep pressing on. And he, the Jews, give a response to this building inspector. And they say, check the records. Go, go back and see what King Cyrus said in the first year of his reign. Go check and see that we are a legit operation here, operating underneath the authority of God and of the king of Persia. Now, that's where we left off last week. It's kind of a big question mark of what's going to happen next. Is, is there another layer of disruption that comes? Is there, is there another twist and turn, another anticlimax in this story of rebuilding? Will King Darius get even more flustered by their continued building efforts and send his military in to crush what he sees as a revolt from the Jewish people? Well, it could have gone that way, but instead we see a huge breakthrough for this building project in chapter 6. What happens in chapter, or verse 1 of chapter 6 is that we see King Darius finding Cyrus's initial decree that, that was given 20-some years ago. He sees it. And being a man of honor, he honors the word of Cyrus that, that this commission has been given to rebuild the house of God in Jerusalem. And so he honors this initial edict and says, go ahead. Right? This, this is a huge break for them. Instead of another obstacle to, to, to overcome, another uh, piece of adversity for them to climb over, a mountain to climb, he says, go ahead. Keep building the temple. You are in the right to do this. It's a huge break. But not only do they keep, get to keep the building, not only do they get to keep grinding away at the mission that they've been called to by God, but they receive a gift, a plentiful gift of resources. It's almost as if King Darius is apologizing to the people in verse 4. He says, my bad, let me make it up to you. I've stalled you far too long from this work. I've kept your hands tied far too long. I will pay for the rest of the building operation. It's not just the building supplies, but the supplies that are needed to worship God rightly in this temple. Look, look at verses 8 and through 10 here. He says this, Moreover, I make a decree regarding what you shall do for these elders of the Jews for the rebuilding of the house of God. The cost is to be paid to these men in full, without delay, from the royal revenue. Now check this out. Now at the beginning of this whole thing, when Darius is getting a little flustered when he hears about this, this building project that's going on, one of the things that made him a little bit nervous was this fear of the Jews siphoning off the taxes and all of the money that he would be entitled to as the ruler of that land domain. And now there's this complete reversal happening. Where instead of Darius being fearful of, of the Jews collecting or, you know, withholding those taxes, Darius is now giving money above and beyond the resources that the Jews would pay in tithes, or the tithes, but in taxes to Darius to supply this building work from happening. It's, it's unbelievable. He says, all of this is to be paid from the royal revenue. The tribute of the providence from Babylon uh, from beyond the river, and whatever is needed. So it's, it's not just the building materials. Bulls, rams, or sheep from, for burnt offerings to the God of heaven, wheat, salt, wine, or oil, as the priests at Jerusalem require, let that be given to them day by day without fail. 
that they may offer pleasing sacrifices to God, to the God of heaven and earth, and pray for the life of the king and his sons. Now, this is a huge, huge break, right? The whole thing gets bankrolled by the Persian Empire. And it's meant to be paid in full without delay, day by day, as any of the needs arise. This is a massive, massive testimony of God's provision to his people. Now, on top of that, that very generous provision, King Darius calls off the dogs. He tells the adversaries, the neighbors, those who are concerned about what's going on in Jerusalem, the people that have been a thorn in the side of the Jews, he says, leave them alone. Let the, house of, let the, let the work on the house of the Lord be left alone. He says, if anybody messes with them, if anybody tries to alter this edict, well, it's going to be a painful death for them. And it's, it's, it's ironic, even, how he says this. So you try to disrupt the house of the Lord, that person, that rule breaker, will be killed by their own home, right? Impaled by a, a, a stick, a big, a big what, do you, what do you call it? He says, a big piece of timber, you'll be impaled upon it, and that person, their house, will ruin. So you try to ruin God's house, your house will be devastated. There's some irony there. And King Darius, in sort of a blessing slash acknowledgement of who God is, says that don't mess with God. God will defend his home. Don't, don't put him to the test. This is best if you back off. Now, this is huge. This is a huge break. You see, you see the kind of fortune that they found here in God's favor to these people through the king of Persia. Now, before... For the Jews, this whole building project was like trying to swim with ankle weights on, right? Wrists strapped up with these 10-pound weights. Each foot has 10-pound weights. Might as well throw on a weight vest while you're trying to swim. It was pretty, pretty hard, pretty impossible. Basically, just treading water. And now, by God's grace, by God's providence, through God's working through the king of Persia, it's as if these weights have been taken off, and now they're just ripping through the water. They're swimming like a fish. And it's between King Darius's help, the, the sort of the, the removal of the restrictions and the, the imposition of favorable laws and the prophetic word that God continues to speak and prod through the prophets Haggai and Zechariah, which I wish I had time to dive into those two books even further because they're fascinating. The work gets done. Check this out, verse 13. Then, according to the word sent by Darius, the king, Tatanai, the governor of the providence beyond the river, Shes see, I've been trying to avoid saying this guy's name the whole time. All the readers have been doing such a great job. This guy, SB, and their other associates did with all diligence what Darius the king had ordered. All right, so here, it's getting worked out. And the elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai, the prophet, and Zechariah, the son of Ido. So here, here's an important thing. So yes, the king lifted the restrictions, but again, the prophetic provocation of Haggai, of Zechariah, constantly is going and chipping at that, that poke in the side from God to prod his people along in the way that they ought to do. Now sometimes, 
If you read through Zechariah, if you read through Haggai, there are times where there's a lot of encouragement. There's times where it's like casting this big vision and just saying, hey, keep on going, keep on pressing on. The reward at the end is great. Keep going. Now, other times, it's been more confrontational. This is what the word of God tends to do. Sometimes it's encouraging when you're doing the right thing. It it continues pressing you in that way. And other times, the word of God is confrontational. It comes as conviction. Now, as Christians, our interaction with the word of God ought to have both of those things frequently. See, if God is always just this encouraging God that's dousing you in affirmations, it might be that you've created a God in your own image, a God, a God who thinks the way that you think and is only maybe just a little bit better, and all you hear is that, that, that attaboy, right? Keep going, you're doing great, you're doing great. But the God of heaven confronts his people when they're out of step with the gospel. The God of heaven confronts his people when they're walking in unrighteousness instead of the path of righteousness, which they've been called to operate by. And so there are sometimes. The sharp word, the hard word, is what God needs to provoke his people to do what they ought to do. And when you pick up your Bible, when you sit under the preaching of the word, when you're going through curriculum studies and missional community, or when your missional community is pressing in on you and bringing the word of God to bear on a specific part of your life, are you open the prophetic provocation of God. What we see is they're both necessary. The encouragement, the provocation, it's both necessary. These are what allowed the work to be done. And it says here, as you keep going on here, they finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by the decree of Cyrus and Darius and Artaxerxes of Persia. And this house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. Yay. (laughs) The project is done. They built the temple. 20 plus years of a project. Listen, I don't know if you're a project person, a weekend project thing. It's like you work on a weekend project. I was just in this the other day. I was staying some wood. It's not a big project. By the end of it, I was just like thankful to be done. Because it just gets to a point where it's monotonous, it's boring. For 20 years, they've been working. For 20 years, they've been giving themselves to the rebuilding of the temple, and now they can finally look at it, and it's complete. It's functional. It's there. It does what it's supposed to do. And, And we'll get to see next week and the following week that there's this big celebration that takes place. They're excited. They celebrate. It's a joyous occasion. The work is done. Now, when you reach the end of a project, when you come to the end of a chapter, it allows you to do a little bit of reflecting on what's transpired in the past. You come out of a hard season, and you look back at it, and you can be able to say, okay, yeah, I, I see how that was really hard in the midst of it, and, and that there's a really long season, really difficult, a lot of challenges, a lot of adversity, but at least on this side, I see that it worked out. Now, I bet if you were to ask the Jews... If you were to visit them in the middle of chapter 4, right, right, right there where they're in the middle of the lull when they just received the, the cease and desist letter from Darius to stop building, if you ask them at that moment, do you think this project would ever get done, it's likely they would say no. It's too hard. 
I mean, we're talking about really heavy stones they're moving here. Like really demanding physical labor. You've got the, the relational complexities, right? You, you're not just doing work by yourself. You're working with somebody else. And I don't know, you have, you've got coworkers probably. It proves to be a challenge at times. Conflict of personalities, or I think we should do it this way, but they th- say that way. There's some conflict relationally that comes in that. You've got some families that are split up. There might be some people in Jerusalem while the rest of the family is back in Babylon. You're dealing with some separation. And even those families that are reunited and committed to this, they're just always in the grind, and they feel that pressure kind of bearing down on them. And so you've got that relational grind that's going on during these 20 years. The hard work, you've got the spiritual warfare that's, that's really constantly going, like it never turns off. They feel that pull, that, that, that desire to kind of get swept into idolatries, to revert back to the ways of the Father. See, they're dealing with all of these hard things in the midst of chapter 4. They've got these wavering attitudes, the grumbling that tends to set in in the midst of difficult things. And then their own fickle hearts on top of that, right? They, They abandon the work of building God's house to build their own houses. All of these aspects of fatigue and wear and tear for 20 years. Now, when you're in the thick of something like that, when you're in the midst of a grind, you're never quite sure if you're going to make it all the way through. Like, there, there's always this little bit of doubt of maybe this is the time that it breaks down. Maybe this is the time where the bottom falls out and we don't quite make it through what we thought we were to do. See, nothing is going right at this moment. They've already given themselves to a lot of hard work, constantly being opposed. And so it's easy to be discouraged. And this reminds me of some of the early years of Sacred City Moline, and some recent years, actually, with COVID, of, of church planting. Church planting in general feels a lot like this. There's a big vision. God gave his people a huge vision to return home, have this huge homecoming, build this temple that God himself would dwell in and the glory of the Lord would be there and it would be so magnificent and God gives a big vision to people to plant churches that that new works of God would be brought up. And people get sent out and and there's uh, there's a combination of ignorance and and youthful zeal and crazy gospel optimism and you set out and you do this hard work and you'll face difficulty. And, and for those of you who have been around for a while, you can attest to that. Right? There's nothing easy about what we're doing here. You, you factor in our lack of experience, a limited skill set, limited resources, limited personnel. You toss in the, the relational and emotional dynamics that make congregational life challenging, the spiritual warfare, that, that is a work of God moves forward. The enemy wants to do everything in his power to cut it out at, at the ankles. You've got critics from outside the church saying that's not the right way to do it. You've got uh, occasional saboteurs on the inside that are disruptive. And you get there and you say, will it go? Will it work? Can this get off the ground? Will we, can this actually happen? Or is this going to kill me in the process, right? You never know. 
Now, I, 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 this is the part of the sermon where I just like, I'm working through this right now myself. And you might feel the same way, going through something difficult. Maybe it's a, a tough season of parenting. You've got a difficult job or there's some dynamics going on at work that's really trying you. You've got a friendship or a marriage that, that's in a rocky spot and you're just trying to hang on, trying to make it through, press through. Maybe you're in a season where things are tight. The budget seems to be more and more meager each passing week. And you're wondering, are we going to make it? Is this thing going to... Is this thing going to come to maturation? Is this going to happen? And when that question gets brought up, and we've talked about this before, the difference between cowardice and courage. Cowardice tends to tuck its tails between its legs and say, well, I guess it's despondent. But to live courageously means that in the midst of these questions, you keep pressing on. You keep being faithful until the Lord clearly closes one door or another. And if you keep pressing on and God's faithfulness is shown to you throughout all of the hardship, all of the difficulty, when you come out the other side of this, when you look back in hindsight, you're flabbergasted, you're shocked by the ways that God has sustained you and provided for you and cared for you and provided everything that you need to get from point A to point B, even when it was against all odds. I think about that early on. I mean, go back 10 years, 10, 9 years in our own lives. I can't believe that God brought us through some of the things that he brought us through. He did it. He actually did it. And to stand on this side there's a huge relief. Now, you might have something like that. You look back at that, it's like, man, I just can't believe that God brought me through that. You stand there on the other side, it's a huge relief. Now, I think that that's probably what the Jews were feeling right in that moment. They, they were at the point, we were backed up against the wall. We had no way out. But God made a way for us. There's a huge sigh. Now, they might, and we might, as we look at the story, as we recount all of the ebbs and flows and the twists and turns of the story, we might look at this story and say, wow, look at this success that they had. Look at what they did. Or we might even look back to our own story and say, look at what I did to get myself out of that. Pat ourselves on the back. We put in hard work. We, we laid out our blood, sweat, and tears. We invested this, and then all finally paid off. And when we look at the story, certainly there was good work that happened. Like the, the Jewish people did good work. But listen, we have to understand that they were not the only ones at work throughout the entirety of this process. This whole story is not about what the people build. This whole story is really about what God builds. It's ultimately a testament of God's work, that he was behind all of it. His fingerprints at every twist and turn, even the hard things, even the places where it felt like they were going through a crucible, God was at work behind it. And so when we read a story like this, when we see all of the evidence of grace, all of the fingerprints, what we should say is not look at what they did, but rather we should say, look at what God has done. Can you believe it? Can you believe that God has been so mindful toward his people? 
I mean, just think about this for a moment. Let's, let's retrace all of these things. First of all, God was at work behind the scenes through all of this deal. He was, he was the worker behind the work. God first protects and preserves for himself a remnant, his own chosen people that got taken away into Babylonian exile. God protects them and keeps them. And while they're in Babylon, God is at work in a way which breaks the generational sin of their forefathers. See, the forefathers that had them, their sin, their rebellion that got, swept, got them swept away into exile. Now we see this new era of faithfulness to God where they hear the call of God on their life and respond and they move out of exile into their homeland. God preserves a people and breaks the generational sin. We see God stir up in the hearts of men. First it was King Cyrus to offer this decree. Then he stirs up in the heart of the hearts of the, the rebuilders to go back, to do the hard work. He stirs up in the heart of the people that are staying back in Babylon to give resources to see this work completed. And as they go about this whole thing, God is the one that is upholding his people in the midst of opposition. See, the, God gave his people a fear of the Lord that was greater than a fear of man. They saw God as the Almighty. They saw God as the true judge. It, it didn't matter what, they, what happened in the opinion of men. They knew what God said was ultimate. And so they kept pressing on. God gave them that vision. God instilled in them the drive. He, he empowered them to do the work so they wouldn't let off the gas. God is behind all of that. This was not a man-made, this was not self-generated activity. God is the one. He's the one igniting it all. And when they did veer off course, when we do see this lull, this mission drift that takes place, God doesn't just let them kind of go their own way, leave them to, to, to run off into the ditch. God sends the prophets who calls them to, to repentance. Here is the word of the Lord. What do you do with the word of the Lord? Do you respond appropriately? The prophets cry out, return to God, and he will return to you. God is behind even their repentance, even their desire to turn back to God. And this word of the, of the Lord provokes them. It encourages them in this work that they've been called to. It's fuel for the mission. And then we see the resources. God just the, the, the lavish resources that gets cranked out, all of it, paid in full, however, however they need it, day by day, give it to them. Darius sees to this project getting done. There's all kinds of resources at their fingertips. They, they have all kinds of productivity. Their work prospers. This, can you see this? This is a symphony that God has orchestrated himself. There's no coincidence here. There's no happenstance this is the sovereign God orchestrating all of this. This is God's handiwork. The whole story up to this point is God's handiwork. And this is what we tend to miss in stories like this. See, we pick up Ezra, and we tend to think that the story of Ezra, at least chapters one through six, is about what the people build for God. But really, the story of Ezra is a story about what God can accomplish through his people. He's the one that's behind it all. He's the worker behind the worker. And as wavering 
and as self-concentrated as they may have been, or as we tend to be, where we drift off course, where we fall back into sin, patterns of sin, we, we lose sight of the mission, God does not. God always stays true to his purpose. And to that end, he's the one that's stirring his people up. He's the one that's enabling and encouraging the work to take place, providing everything that they need to see to it. Now, what this tells us is that this physical temple that the Jews were building isn't the only building project that was underway. There's more than one building project taking place here. And I'm not even talking about the walls yet, because that's another one. See, where there's a physical temple being built by the Jews, God is building a temple for himself in his people. God is building for himself a certain kind of man, a certain kind of woman. A kind of man and woman that can only be developed through the crucible. The, the kind of men and women that are made in the fiery furnace. The, the ones who face hard times and don't let off the gas. The ones who press on, who cling to the promises of God. The kind of men and women who are brought to the end of themselves so that they can begin to experience the power of God. See, these are the kind of people that God is creating for himself kind of people who trust and obey God rightly. Now, at different times through the story, we see how this trust and obedience to God surfaces. And I suggest, just in, in generally speaking, there are three general modes of the Christian life. The first mode is courage. Now, when we are doing the right thing by God, as our lives are, are living congruent to the word of God, no matter what kind of opposition, no matter what kind of setbacks we face, we keep pressing on. See, this is one of the things that the Word of God does. It could steal in our spine. It shows us the course forward, and we can give ourselves. Just as Jesus has had his face set to Jerusalem, we too can have our face set to the mission of God. It gives us courage in going about and doing hard things for God. The second way... The second general mode of Christian as it surfaces in trust and obedience to God is that of repentance. Because it doesn't take us long to realize that we cannot always live courageously. Our sinfulness, our brokenness, our frail figure will oftentimes lead us into the pits of sin. Where we're out of step with the word of God. Where we're not living as God has commanded us to live, and just like, just like with the people of, of Jerusalem there where they kind of veer off into their own, basically their, their own self-idolatry of, of building their own life, we have that same tendency too where the, 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 we get derailed, our lives get derailed into idolatry. And when that happens, when the word of God meets us to confront us in that spot, we don't, we don't fight against it. We don't argue, we don't give a rebuttal. We received the sharp word of God. And though it might be hard, we see this as a gracious word to lead us into repentance. So after times of repentance comes times of refreshing. So the first mode is that of courage. The second mode of a Christian life is that of repentance. And the third mode of the Christian life is to be still.
And usually, this is less of a physical posture and more of an internal posture. As the psalmist says, be still and know that I am God. What this indicates is a prayerful, a prayerful watch to see God do what you cannot do yourself. To see God in his power and my unfold the plans that he has for you, for the church, for the renewal of the city. And as we look back at Ezra, chapters one through six, we can see, okay, they're building the temple, but God is building for himself a kind of people. God is still building men and women like this today. Men and women who trust God. Men and women who obey God and take him at his word. Now, the whole story of, of going back to Jerusalem and finding a city that's, that's left in the ruins, that's a heap of rubble, is imagery for our own life. That Jesus finds us when we're at our lowest in, in the ruins of our sin. We are living in this brokenness and, and dilapidated life where sin has crippled us to the point of anti-life, where, where, where it's the opposite of flourishing, it's futility. And Jesus meets us right there in the midst of it. And he's the one that goes to work to rebuild. And what this rebuilding entails is for Jesus to be destroyed by our sin for us. On the cross, he became our sin. All of the sin that weighs us down, all of the baggage that keeps us from living the growing and flourishing life that God has called us to, Jesus puts that upon himself. He who knew no sin became our sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. He takes that brokenness upon himself. And as Jesus' life is crushed, we find that our life is being rebuilt by God. So as Isaiah said, by his wounds we are healed. We see this, this rebuilding of the temple, this rebuilding of humanity taking place. And when you see this work that God does, work that you cannot do in and of yourself, faith erupts within us. The moment that you see God do for you what you cannot do for yourself, you realize that God has made you a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. You stand in the work of Christ. See, this is, this is the anthem of Christian. When we sang this, in Christ alone my hope is found, this is what we're singing, that my life has been rebuilt on the blood, sweat, and tears of Jesus, not my own. This was God's doing, his sovereign work. He was the one behind it, and he's bringing it about for my benefit and for his glory. And so when Paul says in Ephesians chapter two that we are God's workmanship, we can nod our heads in agreement. When Paul says you are God's workmanship, you've been created by Christ for good works. Oh yeah, I have been created. My faith is securely in Jesus. I know him, he is, he's redeemed me, he's taken my sin upon himself. And now I'm a new creation. I am God's workmanship. I am what God has been creating, the building project that God has taken upon himself. And when our salvation is secure in Jesus, when we see that, that God isn't 
just concerned. I mean, in, in the Old Testament, he's concerned about building a brick-and-mortar temple. You move to the New Testament, the illustration shifts. It's not about the brick-and-mortar. It's about the people of God. It's that we ourselves become a dwell. The Holy Spirit dwells in the hearts of all who believe. It's a spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. It's a spirit who dwells in the church that where Christ is the foundation. And, and the, the individual members are the bricks put side by side. And the mortar that holds it all together is the spirit of God that keeps us secure. We see that God is making for himself an eternal temple. One made not by the hands of man, but by the hands of God. There's great confidence to be had in that. We might say, I'm nowhere close to being a a finished product yet. I mean, the people of Israel, they stand right there, and they're looking, and the temple's complete. And I'm standing here in the midst of my brokenness, in the midst of my imperfections, in the midst of my failures, and I'm wondering, when will I be complete? When, when will I get to hear, it's all done? When's, when's the grand opening ceremony, the ribbon cutting? When's that going to happen? And for the Christian, we live in this tension where the work has already been completed by Christ. But at the same time, the work still goes on. See, we live in the already not yet. God has done the work. God has built the house. It's already been done, but it's still going on today. So as Christians, we can admit, living in this already but not yet, that we are a work in progress. We are progressively becoming more of who we already are. That's the process of sanctification. Justification is when you are, boom, right there on the site, made right with God. Your standing cannot be altered. Jesus has secured that for you. But sanctification is the working out of that justification reality into all of life. Where you're becoming who you already are. So if you're a disciple of Jesus, your life is a hard hat area. It's a work zone. God is at work, and you do not need to be discouraged because his work is not done. Jesus is working hard at work, sometimes even harder than what you're working at your own growth and sanctification. And he's working to develop a people who live in this lifestyle of faith and repentance, people who live into the courage that comes from God, doing hard things for God in the face of adversity. He's he's cultivating people that when confronted by their sin, say, you're right, God. I do not need to defend myself. I can put this on Jesus. He's already paid the price for my sins. And people who can rest in what Jesus has done, to be still and not try to add to the work Jesus has already accomplished. Now, as we live in this, as our life is this hard hat area, I want you to be encouraged to know that some of the most productive seasons of life are when it's the hardest. God has this tendency to do the biggest work when we're facing the most adversity. God has this tendency to make big breakthroughs when it seems like 
everything's not stacked in our favor because that's the kind of God that God is. He likes to flex in the places where we have no optimism. And so we can borrow from Paul when he says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, He says, now I am sure of this. He's saying, I have great certainty in this reality that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. Listen, no matter where you're standing right now, if you're on the backside of a major trial, major challenge in life, and you're looking back, it's like, wow, God really did bring me through. If you're right in the midst of it and you're just wondering, can I break through, can I get through this? Hold on to these words of certainty the Apostle Paul has that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion till the day of Christ Jesus. It's because of this, because God is a God at work. He's the worker behind the worker. We can be confident in our future. Now, where does this confidence come from? As I close here, let me bring you, I wanna, I wanna share with you a passage from John Calvin's commentary on this passage. It's a, it's a lengthy one, so I, I put it up on the screen here so you can follow along with me. He says this, John Calvin says, but, but someone will say, why should men dare to assure themselves for tomorrow admits so great an infirmity of nature, admits so many impediments, ruggedness, and precipices, what is he saying? There's so much hardship, there's so much difficulty in life, how can we be so bold that God will bring this work to completion? What kind of courage does that take? He points us to the Apostle Paul. Paul assuredly did not derive this confidence from the steadfastness of excellence of men, but simply from the fact that God had manifested his love to the Philippians. See, we don't derive this from our own ability. We, we don't take this from our own skill set to say, well, yeah, I can pull myself up by the bootstraps. Rather, we see that God is the one who set his love on us, just as he did the Philippians. Our confidence in this work is tethered to God's ability and love for us, not our own. And it's unconditional love. So it's not that God will bring us about once we've done all the right things and jumped through the right hoops. God is still working on us. And then he shifts here, he says, and undoubtedly this is true, this, this is the true manner of acknowledging God's benefits. So seeing the love of God, seeing what he's done, when we derive from them occasion of hoping well as to the future. So he acknowledges, hey, the reason why we can look to the future is that in the past, God has already revealed his love to us. God has already begun a good work. And because of this past action, we look to the future. He goes on, for as they, speaking of God's benefits, are tokens at once of his goodness and of his fatherly benevolence toward us, what ingratitude, check this out, what ingratitude were it to derive from this no confirmation of hope and good courage? What's he saying? If we look at that and what God has done, and we find no, nothing that alters our future, nothing that instills hope, nothing that gives us good courage, we're taking God's grace for granted. We, we don't see the scope of it. We don't see what this is intended to do.
Let therefore believers exercise themselves in constant meditation upon the favors which God confers, that they may encourage and confirm hope as a time to come and always ponder in their mind this syllogism. God does not forsake the work which his own hands have begun. We are the work of his hands. Therefore, he will complete what he has begun in us. Brothers and sisters, let us draw from the past grace of God and know that he has a desire to change our present into our future, to give us hope in the midst of adversity, to know that he is at work making us into a certain kind of people. And as we come to the Lord's table today, we are reminded that the body was broken for us, the blood was shed for us, that through his wounds, we are healed. We stand on the work of Christ. Full assurance is ours because of Jesus. And little by little, from one degree of glory to the next, we are being transformed. And the elements have a big role in this. It points us to this reality that we're drawing from the provisions of God, his spiritual empowerment implanted in our hearts, placed within a certain people to do the will of God in this place here and now. Let us lean into this with great confidence that God will finish the work he began. Father, we thank you for stories like this that, that give us a lift to see after all of the hardship, after all of the tough seasons, 20 plus years of difficulty, you prove yourself faithful. You prove yourself to be a God who is building things that are even bigger and better than what the hands of man can build. And so we ask God, we, we implore you to continue building your church here, a church that can weather all this culture, all the enemy, all the gates of hell throw at us, that we would cling to Jesus in faith, the one, the founder, the perfecter of our faith. And we ask that as you continue to do this good work on us until Jesus comes back and makes all things new, that we would, from one degree of glory to the next, be transformed, that the grace of Jesus would move us into who we already are, that we would glean your blessing from that, that you would be glorified in and through us for now and forever. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.